Let's take our Bibles this morning and open to the fourth chapter of James. We'll be looking at the first ten verses of the fourth chapter, James 4, 1 through 10. There's a little difference in where we've been now. In the first three chapters, James has given us characteristics of genuine faith. We've seen at least six of them. In this next section, James will list four warnings uh, for Christians to heed. Warnings about conflicts in verses 1 through 10, where we'll be this morning, and then slander, verses 11 and 12, boasting in verses 13 through 17, and a warning about wealth in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. You say, well, I don't have to be warned about that, I don't have any. But uh, it's a wonderful section, a very practical book, not a book where it has long sentences, just short, concise commands, imperatives for us to be obedient to. And so the title of the message this morning is The Cure for Conflicts. The Cure for Conflicts. First of all, in verse 1, the first half of verse 1, it says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? So in verses 1 through 4, we're going to find out where conflicts come from. What causes them? And so we have this question, from whence come wars and fightings among you. The fact that James even has to ask this question lets us know that he already has heard about some problems in the assembly. And if he's heard of them, I'm sure others have too. It's not the kind of testimony that churches are supposed to have. He asks, where are these wars and fightings that are among you coming from? What's the source? Our scripture reading in Acts chapter 4 that we just read drew our attention to that that sweetness of Christian fellowship that was obvious at the beginning of the first church. Now we ask, what happened? What changes that? Since the church is made up of fallen sinners that are saved by grace, it shouldn't surprise us that conflicts are going to come. But when they do come, God expects us to have victory, to maintain a testimony of a loving body of believers to a lost world, to ourselves as we come and realize that only God can can help us to, to accomplish his will in working together as a body. I believe to demons... To angels in heaven, we're a testimony to them as we have a a unified church, and also to God. When someone, that we say, loses it or snaps and starts to say things that you say, where did that come from? Uh, If you're driving your car and you hear a noise, you often will say, I, I don't recognize that one. That uh, doesn't sound good. It sounds like about a $2,500 repair. Uh, what's that noise? Where did that come from? And when we, we know where it came from, the engine, transmission, wheels, whatever, then we're going to be able to go in t- or at least take it to a mechanic and say, it sounded like tickety-tock, tickety-tock, or crunch when I hit the brakes. We try to explain where it came from. Well, The reason for the question right here at the outset of chapter 4 is that if you're going to make peace, we've got to find out what's causing the conflict. James uses two words, wars and fightings. The word wars is uh, pelamos. It 
uh, we use that word polemical today, but it indicates a series of battles, a war, the state of war. And then he uses the word fightings, and that's make, it's individual disputes, clashes that arise. Both of these words are in the plural. There are many different wars that continue to go unresolved in many churches. Some last for years. Those are the wars. Others are little individual disputes that seem to pop up, and they're over in a few weeks, and those are the fightings. Both are damaging. Both are displeasing to the Lord. Perhaps you've known of churches like that. Word spreads rapidly. It's a, it's a poor testimony to the church in the community. And as I said, it has ramifications that are even angelic hosts look and see what's going on. And I'm sure Satan the accuser says, oh, did you see what's happening in that church today, Lord? And these words are, again, both in the plural. Um... James is writing to the church. Remember, these are Christian Jews that are scattered abroad, the diaspora. They're outside of Jerusalem in all of the area. The word assembly we saw in chapter 2 and verse 2 is the word sunagoge. It refers to uh, the synagogue, and so the early church was still meeting in the synagogue. It's the reason for the early date of the book of James. We've mentioned before, I think, that 15 times in this short letter, James addresses the readers as brethren, my brethren, or my beloved brethren. But in these ten verses we're looking at today, those words are noticeably missing. Uh, from whence comes war, come wars and fightings among you? Those two words, among you, imply that these conflicts are internal. These were not attacks from the outside unbelievers of the world. These were problems within the assembly. The early church had their problems. Warren Wiersbe reminds us about problems in the first century church. He said the, the members of the Corinthian church were compel, competing with each other in public meetings and even suing each other in court. The Galatian believers were biting and devouring one another. Paul had to admonish the Ephesians to cultivate spiritual unity. And even his beloved church at Philippi had problems. Two women couldn't get along with each other. As long as churches have imperfect people, there are going to be conflicts. They say if you find a church, a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> Someone has said, to live above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with folks we know, now that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. so let's find out where the conflicts are coming from. We can do something about these wars and fightings that take place within the church when we discover the source. James answers his own question with another question at the second half of verse 1. I'm going to make a suggestion. He says, correct me if I'm wrong. Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. And he's answering that question. They come... These disputes, these conflicts, these wars come from your own lusts. The word lusts here is hedonai. We have our English word hedonist from that Greek word. 
A hedonist is a person who lives to please himself. Things haven't changed much since James wrote this answer. Conflicts in our churches today come because people want to have their own way. They're not willing to bend. They're only interested in what pleases them. And you say, boy, I'm glad you're preaching this message because I know people like that. (laughs) But let's draw the circle tighter around ourselves and just revival can be an individual thing. It can come in your own heart, and that's where it should start after all. But these lusts, it says war in our members. The verb here for war is a word that means they, they soldier. James is telling us that wars and conflicts come from our selfish desires that bring us together in a sort of hand-to-hand combat. Who's doing the fighting? Members of the body of Christ. Members of the body that... We're supposed to be known by our love that we have one for another. John said in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And here, just the opposite is taking place. The trouble in the church comes from selfish desires of the heart. One commentator narrows all the problems down to one key issue. The ultimate choice in life lies between pleasing oneself and pleasing God. Verses 2 to 4, we have an explanation of what's going on. You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your own lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The reason for the conflicts is because of your own selfish desires that are going unmet. You aren't getting what you want. You desire and cannot obtain. Remember back in James chapter 1 and verse 17, it said every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father. When you have a desire, if God won't give it to you, there's a reason for that. And what's our response supposed to be? Not to be angry with somebody else that we're not getting our way. We ought to go toward God. We ought to pray. So the reason for the conflict, you're not getting your way. The result, look at the extent to which people aren't, uh, will go when they don't get their own way. They'll, they'll, the, here comes the battle. You're, you lost and ha- have not, so you end up with a hateful attitude that escalates even with this desire that's described as something to kill. Selfish, unfulfilled desires will kill friendships. They will destroy ministries. They kill the the ministries of churches. The Bible says in 1 John 3.15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. You desire uh, to have and cannot obtain, so you fight and war. Here's the right response. How should we go about obtaining the things we desire? The answer is simple. Pray. Ask God for what you think you need. James gives two reasons as to why our prayers are not answered. He said, you don't have because you don't ask. That's one of the things that Layman Strauss talks about in Sense and Nonsense about prayer. How do we expect to get something and we've never asked God for it? 
You don't have because you didn't ask. You never stopped to say, I need to pray for this. I need to pray that God will show me what his will is in this regard. Second, you don't have because you ask with wrong motives. He uses two words here. You ask with selfish motives. You ask amiss. That word means you ask literally badly, wrongly. You had the wrong intent in that prayer. Or selfishly, in order that you may consume it or spend it on your own pleasures. Here's the rebuke. And James comes out very strong here. He's been polite. He's been asking them in, in rhetorical question form. And now he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Okay? He, he puts a label on the problem. He wants us to see how serious this problem of conflicts in the church is. He calls it adultery. Adultery is a union with someone who's not your spouse. This sin breaks a sacred promise that you made in your wedding vows. It breaks a holy trust. It fractures lives, relationships. It ruins families. It affects so many people. James uses this human experience that we all see to describe what's going on spiritually. When a believer walks away from God, God loves him perfectly. He has a relationship with him. And this person walks away and looks for love and satisfaction in, in different places, what the world has to offer. One author says, you can no more spiritually have two gods than you can legally have two spouses. The sin is explained. It's called enmity. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. There, there's this willful choice involved. Did you see that word? Whosoever, therefore, will be. A person makes a calculated decision, a willful choice. This is what I want to do. I want to, I'm going into the world to have my, my satisfaction. A friend of the world. One writer says, cosmos, world, does not refer to the physical earth or universe, but rather to the spiritual reality of the man-centered, Satan-directed system of this present age, which is hostile to God and God's people. It refers to the self-centered, godless value system and mores of fallen mankind. The goal of the world is self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction, and every other form of self-serving, all which amounts to hostility toward God. That friendship of the world is enmity against God. He makes himself an enemy of God. No one can have a friendly relationship with sin and at the same time have a right relationship with God. They're mutually exclusive. You're either a friend of the world and God's enemy, or you're God's friend and an enemy of the world. I love the words that Fanny Crosby wrote, Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abides forever through eternal years the same. Don't choose to go after the world. Don't be a friend of the world. You stoop to trying to satisfy your heart with your own desires, instead of asking God to give you what he sees best. And so at the basis of every conflict is this desire to satisfy myself. When you've gone to a doctor, you want a diagnosis. That's exactly what James has given. What's causing all these wars and fightings? 
doctor says, test results are in. Problem comes from within your own heart. It's a heart of selfishness. But there is a cure if you're willing to follow the Lord's directions. And here they are. There, there's a two-step plan for a cure and then the rest of these verses. And, and I thought of the word, the song, trust and obey, when I saw those. Because the first is to rely on his all-sufficient grace, verses 5 and 6. And the last is do what God tells you to do, verses 7 through 10. So let's look at this point, rely on God's all-sufficient grace, verses 5 and 6. Do you think that the, sacrifice, that the scripture saith in vain? The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. I am so glad we have this book we call the Holy Scriptures, God's Word. It's his instruction manual for our lives. It's our spiritual medical journal. It has the answer for every human condition. Whatever your problem is, God has the solution in his word, and he reveals that remedy in this wonderful, authoritative, inspired, divine book. Do you think the scripture saith in vain? Gabeline writes this of that phrase. While most Christians would answer with an emphatic no, the honest reply, according to the practice of many a life, must be yes. He's saying the scripture must say it in vain because it's not affecting the way that we're living. What does the scripture say? This is probably not a direct quote. There are several Old Testament passages that deal with the human spirit of envy and selfish desires. But here's what it says. The spirit, there is a spirit of envy within us. And when you came to Christ and he saved you, he put within you the divine presence of the Holy Spirit of God. You have a new nature. But you know what? The old nature is still there. That old nature who used to dictate everything that you did, everything that you desired, still wants to have control over you. And that battle for control will continue until you get to heaven and you don't have the carnal nature anymore. Matthew Henry says, the spirit of the world teaches us to lay up or lay up for ourselves according to our own fancies. God, the Holy Spirit, teaches us to be willing to do good to all about us as we're able. The grace of God will correct and cure the spirit by nature in us. And where he gives grace, he gives another spirit than that of the world. Some have likened this battle that takes place between the old and new nature as a battle between two dogs that reside within us. And which one is going to win? The dog that's stronger. Which dog's going to be stronger? The one that you feed and say sick them to. So read your Bible. Spend time in prayer. Meet with other believers in church where you can worship and, and hear the preaching of God's word. That's where you'll be strengthening the inner man by God's grace. There is a greater grace. I love the phrase, he giveth more grace. It's, notice the first word, he giveth more grace. It's God who gives us grace. We don't earn it. We don't try to find it on our own. He giveth more grace. We need him. We can't find strength for that spiritual battle from anything within ourselves. 
It's sufficient grace. He giveth more grace. God gave enough grace to save you, didn't he? Paul wrote in Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And Paul made up a word there, grace hyperabounded. There's more than enough grace for salvation. And there's still more. You'll find a sufficient supply of grace for each new day. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He giveth more grace. If you're here and without Christ, never trusted him as your Savior, there's enough grace to cover your sin today. If you're here and say, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this week, he gives you daily grace. He'll strengthen you. Come boldly to his throne. You'll find grace to help in time of need. You can respond to God's grace in one of two ways. You can be proud and say, no, I don't need that today. It says God resists the proud. The word resist there is antitasso, to stand against. It describes an army that's suited for battle. So God has his sword drawn. He stands against the proud. The other response you can have to his grace is to humble yourselves and accept his grace. He gives grace to the humble. The first cure for the conflicts that happen in church is to humbly accept God's grace. Stop trying to satisfy your own desires through your own efforts. Trust God to give you grace to obey his will. And so that's, that's what brings us to verses 7 through 10. We talked about grace, which is trusting him and now obeying him. Do what God tells you to do, verses 7 through 10. We'll go quickly. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he shall lift you up. In this passage, there are ten aorist imperative verbs. That aorist tense helps us to know that we're to, we're to do what we're being told to do right now, and we're to continue doing it. Okay? Do this now and keep doing it. Submit. This is a word, hupatasso. We saw antitasso, resist. Here's Submit. Hupata, that is to, to stand under, to arrange yourself under someone else's authority. Submit yourselves to who? To God. Being obedient to God's command is the only way that you can have victory over the conflicts that come from wanting to do things your own way. It amazes me to think that there are Christians who really believe the Bible is God's word. They say, oh yes, I, I know it's absolutely true. I believe it's inspired. I believe it's infallible. But when it comes to submitting to its authority, there's a breakdown. If we're going to have unity in the body of Christ, if we're going to have victory over wars and fightings, each of us need to submit and be obedient to God's word. Second, resist. That's the same word. Uh, stand against. Uh, say no to. Um, 
1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The next verse, whom resist steadfast in the faith, not in your own strength, whom resist him in the faith. So submit to God, resist, stand against Satan, draw an eye to God, come close to him. How close are you to God today? Was there ever a time where you were closer to him than you are now? If so, draw near to him. He invites you. It's an action that begins in the heart. Isaiah 29, 13 says, Wherefore the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Draw near to him with your heart in in genuine, authentic faith and truth. He draws near to us when we call on him. Psalm 145, 18, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. Draw nigh to God. Take time out of your busy schedule. You'll be glad that you did. Draw near to him. Let him know how much you love him, how much you need him. Cleanse your hands. This cleansing is in the area of what we do. You look at your hands, you think about your daily activities. Look back at everything you did this week. And then we ought to confess those things that we did that were wrong, that were sinful. And then we ought to confess those things that we should have done that we didn't do, that we neglected. David writes in Psalm 24, 13, Who shall ascend unto the holy hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And that's exactly the next step here. Purify your hearts. This cleansing is not what you do, but what you are. Your heart is the center of your being. Confess those attitudes that rise up against God and against his will. Those rebellious things, the foolish pride, self-centeredness, unbelief. James says, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. The word there is a divided soul. Saying that you know that you're, uh, I know Christ, but I'm going to live the way I want to live. That's a divided soul. A pure heart will live a holy life. Then three uh, statements here. Be afflicted, mourn, and weep. Be afflicted is realize your own weakness, your own misery. Mourn, have a deep sense of grief. And that weeping is that expression, that outward expression, uh, the, uh, the vocalization of that grief. It's a crying. Those three words show a humble response of brokenness. Be broken. Be burdened. One of the problems, I think the greatest problem in our society and culture today is people are so proud they'll never want to show their brokenness. We're too self-reliant to admit that we need God. Pray for God to bend you. In 1904, the revival in Wales was the beginning of an awakening that would sweep around the world. In less than 10 months, about 100,000 people joined the little chapels in Wales, and they were filled to overflowing. Could it happen today? Could it happen in America? I've heard people say, no, not going to happen anymore. Don't limit what God can do. One of the starting points of that worldwide revival occurred during a prayer meeting, the Welsh Revival. 
when a young college student named Evan Roberts prayed, bend me. Later he wrote this, I fell on my knees with my arms over the seat in front of me and the tears flowed freely. I cried, bend me, bend me, bend me. Broken churches can only be healed by broken praying hearts. Consider your own condition. Be sorrowful for, for how you're living. Have you ever come to a point where God breaks you? Where tears, you realize that you've come to the end of your own strength. The realization, that realization is often the very reason that God takes us through those troubles. God uses broken things. He wants us to be broken. The ninth imperative, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Why do we laugh on the pathway to disobedience? Hebrews 11.25 says there's pleasure in sin for a season, but then it's over and there's sorrow. When you see where sin leads, I think it'll cause you to weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God. Make yourself low. And then what will happen? And he will lift you up. The way down is the way up. The list begins with the word submit. And it ends with humble yourselves. That's the key to resolving conflicts. Whether it's a conflict that you have in the church with someone else, or a conflict that you have in your own heart or the Lord, it can be resolved by humbling yourself. Rely on God's all-sufficient grace. Do what he tells you to do. It's time to draw near to God. It's time to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. It's time to be broken to ask God to bend us. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, come and let him save you from your sins. And the cure for that conflict that you have against God, you're an enemy of his, is to lay down that willful heart of rebellion and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Save me from my sin. Be the Lord of my life. Accept him as your Savior today. If you've already been saved... But there are areas of your life that you know that are displeasing to him. Come and end the conflict by giving over your, your own agenda and asking him to take control of your life and make you happy to be obedient to his. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you will use your word today to change our hearts. Help us to be broken by the Holy Spirit of God, to rely on your strength and your grace for every day that we live, for only then we see the glory of God revealed in us and through us as we desire to be used for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.